Well, let's turn uh, to Matthew chapter 6. We'll begin a new study today on the subject of prayer. And we'll spend a few weeks in this passage, and then we'll look to uh, two or three others uh, in the weeks to come after that. But today, let's begin reading in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things that you have need of before you ask Him. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the, the Word of God. I just want to share with you for a moment before we dig into this passage uh, a scene or a few scenes, a day in the life, if you will, of the ministry of Jesus. In Mark chapter 1, uh, Mark records this particular day as Jesus began in the morning teaching in the synagogue. Mark 1 verse, 30, uh, verse 21 says, Then they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath... He entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. This was not something totally out of the ordinary. Jesus went to the synagogue every Sabbath, and this particular Sabbath, like many others, he taught. And these were not the simple one-hour church services like we have today. It would be nothing strange for them to be there for uh, three hours or more hearing the Word taught. They didn't have a Bible they could pick up at home uh, any day of the week and any time they pleased. So they were eager to gather with uh, God's people on the Sabbath and hear the Word. And this particular Sabbath, Jesus taught. Verse 23 says that now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit. And he cried out. Somewhere he cried out. I lost my place. He cried out, verse 24, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So no one's ever uh, come up and spoken in a, the voice of a demon during any of my sermons, thankfully. And hopefully that doesn't come to pass. But teaching and preaching enough is, is enough work in itself, uh, much less to be interrupted by a man possessed with demons. 
So Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet, come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region of Galilee. So just this morning in the synagogue has been an eventful day. And probably a tiring day so far in the life of Jesus. But the day's not over. Verse 29 says, Now as soon as they had come out of the synagogue, they entered into the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. And just like many of us, we'll leave church today, we'll go home, and we'll enjoy lunch. Hopefully, right? You're looking forward to having a good lunch this afternoon and taking a break um, from all the hard work of getting up and getting ready and going to church this morning. Uh, Jesus has taught, he's cast out demons, he's probably tired. He goes to Peter's house, but verse 30 says Simon's wife's mother lay sick with a fever. And they told him about her at once. So Jesus' work isn't finished. Even going home, uh, he's not quite ready to rest. Verse 31 says, so he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and immediately the fever left her, and then she served them. Sounds like a good time for a Sunday afternoon nap. But no, the work continues on. Verse 32 says, At evening, when the sun had set, they brought to him all who were sick and those who were demon-possessed. So this is already sunset. He's working on into the night with his ministry. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And when he had healed many who were sick and with various diseases and cast out many demons, he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. That's a busy day. That's a tiring day. If that was your Sunday, a full day of ministry, coming to the church, teaching all morning, ministering to people, going home, not being able to enjoy your lunch right away, but doing more ministering, and then maybe a little break in the afternoon. But even to the point that the sun is going down, there are people in your home needing ministry, and you work on late into the night. What's the next morning going to look like for you? Sleeping in, most likely. You're going to need a break. But here's where Jesus' priorities were. Verse 35. Now in the morning... Having risen a long while before daylight. I don't know how much time he got to sleep because the sun was already setting as people were piling in at the door. But a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place. And there he prayed. And there he prayed. Jesus had his long day and long night of ministry. And even to the point that his body was no doubt exhausted and wanted sleep, what was the thing that Jesus felt he needed so badly that he got up a long while, even before the sun was up, to do? To pray. To spend time with his heavenly Father. Jesus is a good example. Let me just ask you this. If your prayer life could be graded. Uh, if you could receive a score on your prayer life, what would it be? Um, a good solid B, B minus. Uh, maybe some of you feel confident and you could say you'd get an A. Um, maybe some of you like me are, 
feeling like maybe you're in the, the low C or D category. But I wonder where you would rate your own prayer life. What kind of prayers do you pray? Thinking about how you pray, what kind of prayers do you pray most often? How often do you pray? Do you pray simply just over meals or when you have an immediate need? Or do you pray as Jesus did to commune with your Father in heaven? What's your prayer life worth to you? You remember Daniel who prayed three times a day. He'd go and open his windows towards Jerusalem, get down on his knees and pray. And whenever the people who hated Daniel wanted to get Daniel, what's the one thing they could count on him to do? If they could make that one thing illegal, they were guaranteed to catch Daniel in a trap. And what was it? It was to pray. Now, when Daniel heard that decree that it was illegal to pray to anyone to the, but to the king, Daniel could have quite easily just shut his windows and snuck away and prayed quietly. Or he could have walked, in a whisper, walked and whispered a prayer walking to work, work in the morning. But Daniel continued on as he always had. Prayer was so valuable to him. His relationship to God was so valuable to him that even though he was threatened with death, he prayed. While Jesus is a, a perfect example for us, He also gave us some specific teaching on prayer at various points in His ministry. And probably the most well-known is this passage that we've read this morning in Matthew 6 that we call the Lord's Prayer or the Model Prayer. In this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is teaching the Jews, and, and not just those immediate disciples who are in front of Him, but also the religious leaders who are listening in, about three aspects of their religion. In this passage, He talks about charitable deeds, He talks about prayer, and then He talks about fasting. And in all three cases, Jesus begins with the word, when. When. Verse 2, He says, when you do a charitable deed. Verse 5, he says, when you pray. Verse 16, he says, when you fast. In all of these cases, Jesus is assuming that these are things his audience is doing. Jesus doesn't uh, ask you if you are praying or if you should pray. He simply begins his teaching by saying, when you pray. It's expected that God's people would pray and Christians are commanded to pray. Ephesians 6.18 tells us to pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Colossians 4.2 says continue earnestly in prayer. Be vigilant in it with thanksgiving. And then that passage you all know so well, an easy verse to remember, 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without ceasing. It's a clear commandment that Christians should pray. And these are the expectations of the Christian life. Prayer in the life of a Christian has been compared by some to breathing. In one sense, it's an action that we're naturally drawn to, that it should just overflow from the way we live. You don't stop and think, well, it's been five seconds, I'd better take a breath. <gasps> And then you have to think about it again later. That would be exhausting. And prayer shouldn't be a thing that you have to spend a lot of time thinking about. You should just do it. You should just have the relationship to God in such a way that you just talk to Him. But two, it's, it's like breathing in that it's necessary for your very life. 
You can't make it very long as a Christian without speaking to your Creator, to your Savior. Unfortunately, that doesn't mean that it always comes easy, does it? In fact, even in an activity as sacred as prayer, as communication between man and God, even in that, Satan tries to interfere. How many times do you stop to pray and you really get alone and quiet and all of a sudden so many things start flooding your mind? Distractions and things that you have to do later or things that you did earlier in the day or, or conversations you've had flood your mind and you're all distracted. Or maybe you pray in such a way that you think, well, I really did, it, did good today. I did my service to God today. I spent you know 15 minutes in prayer, so I'm good. God must be really happy with me. And even in that, pride flares up. So even an act as such as sacred as prayer, Satan certainly tries to interfere. So before Jesus teaches his followers how to pray, he takes a moment here and teaches them how not to pray. He says in verse 5, he says, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. I don't really have to tell you what a hypocrite is. Everyone knows a hypocrite. Uh, hypocrites are pretenders. They are those who, in one setting or in front of one group of people, appear to be a certain way, or maybe with their mouth they say a certain thing, but in reality their heart or their actions are in a totally different place. Their lives don't line up. The worst kind of sin is the sin that pretends to be religious. You know, there's sin that we can look at in the world and we all agree that that's sinful. You can look at an alcoholic or somebody who's out you know, on drugs or you know, they've got all kinds of adulterous relationships and you see things like that that are really openly sinful and there's no disagreement there. But the sin that's worse than that is the sin that parades itself as godly or the sin that, that masks itself as religious and God-honoring. And so when sin invades our prayer life, that's when hypocrisy really becomes a serious problem. So Jesus says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners and that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, if all it said was for they love to pray, we would say, praise God. I wish more of us loved to pray. I pray that God would give us a desire, a yearning to commune with Him in prayer and that more people would genuinely love to pray. But He says they love to pray standing. Well, there's nothing inherently wrong with standing to pray, is there? It's not really the posture that's the problem. We see examples in Scripture of people standing to pray, kneeling to pray, lying face down to pray. Uh, I won't read the whole poem to you, but one of my favorites is the guys who are debating the, the right posture of prayer. And the one guy says, well, one day I, I fell head first into someone's well. And he said, the, the, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed was standing on my head. You know, so maybe we should all pray that way. Uh, I don't think that there, that really matters which posture we take. So that's not the issue. But he says standing in the synagogues. Is that the problem? Well, there's nothing really wrong with public prayers in a religious setting. That wouldn't have been anything abnormal. It's not anything abnormal for us. 
to call on someone to stand either in the pew or behind the pulpit and to lead the congregation in prayer. He says, on the corners of the streets. Was there anything wrong with praying on a street? Well, no, not necessarily. There's nothing wrong with public prayers in any other setting beside the church. In fact, I think we should pray more publicly. Some of you have been talking recently about prayer walking. And taking to these streets around our church and praying for homes. I think that's a good thing. So if there's nothing wrong with standing, there's nothing wrong with standing in a religious setting, there's nothing wrong with standing and praying in a public setting, what's the problem? What makes them hypocrites? That next phrase, he says, that they may be seen by men. That they may be seen by men. Any religious activity, any activity that would otherwise be right, loses that rightness when it becomes about what other people think of the one doing the activity. You can take any job in the church, you can take any work for God that would be a good thing, even something you're commanded to do and that you should be doing, such as praying. But when it becomes about what other people think about me doing this thing, it becomes sin. Love of the approval of men will diminish the value, if not entirely ruin, any activity that might otherwise be pleasing to God. When it comes to our prayers in whatever setting, it, yes, I think you should pray publicly. You should pray with your family. You should pray in your church. You should pray with, with people on the street even on occasion. But when it becomes about what people think about me, that's when it becomes a problem. Prayer is no exception when it comes to the approval of men. But what does Jesus say about them? He says, I say to you, they have their reward. What does he mean? If they want the approval of men, if you do a deed for God, or if you pray a prayer publicly, and you do it to see who will praise you, and you get those pats on the back, just be assured you have your reward. There will be no further reward from God for you if you're seeking the approval of men. This is such dangerous territory because it comes so easily. Especially when we're doing something that we have been commanded to do. But Jesus says in verse 6, But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now again, this isn't to say that public prayers are always inappropriate. Jesus isn't saying to cease public prayers. The point is that the primary focus of your prayer life ought to be the intimacy with God that is found in private prayer. The main way that you pray should be in secret. The place where you find your deepest intimacy with God, your closest communion with Him, will not be when you stand before a congregation or when you pray aloud with your family. Your deepest communion with God will come when you shut yourself up in a place alone and pray. That's what Jesus did. He got up long before the sun. 
And if you read on in that passage, the disciples came to him and they said, Jesus, everyone is looking for you. There's ministry to be done. There's people crowding from all around to see you. You need to come out and start healing people again. And other people will always have something for you to do. There will always be things pressing on your schedule, but you have to make it a priority to set aside that quiet time, that alone time where you can have intimacy with God. You have to set that priority. Jesus did plenty of public ministry. He did plenty of public praying. But everything that he did that was seen was fueled by the time that he spent with his father that was unseen. And so for us, Christian ministry is going to be seen. People are going to hear you pray. People are going to see you good deed, do good deeds for God. And they should. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Not glory to you, not your pats on the back, but glory to your Father in heaven. That's going to happen. That's okay. Jesus said that people should see our good works. But the things that we do that are seen only will have eternal value. They will only have any real power when they are fueled by a vital relationship with God in private prayer. If you want the ministry that's seen to have any real power, if you want it to have any eternal value, it has to come from time alone with God in secret. You have to have that quiet time with God. I have to have that quiet time with God. Listen, I can prepare sermons in my own strength. I can study the Bible. I can tell you what a text means and I can build a sermon and I can preach it. And I could probably get a few pats on the back. And that was a good message today, preacher. And go home and feel good about myself. But unless what I do that's seen publicly, unless the preaching of the word has been fueled by a week long or more than a week long of private prayer, of time alone with God, it will have no power. It will have no lasting eternal value. And the same goes with any ministry that you're involved in. You must have your time alone with God. He says the Father who sees in secret will reward you. You don't need the reward of men. You don't need the pats on the back. If you want, if you want approval from anyone, it needs to be from God. His approval is all that matters. Jesus said, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. He does not command you to bear fruit. He commands you to abide in him. And he says if you abide in him, then you will bear much fruit. Abiding with Christ in prayer must be the priority in any ministry. Another thing not to do, he says in verse 7, he says, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Uh, in Jesus' day, and really even in our own, pagans would repeat themselves to get the attention of their God. You think about um, those uh, priests of Baal on the mountain with Elijah. 
They cried out for hours, Oh, Baal, hear us. Oh, Baal, hear us. They repeated themselves over and over and over again. And they began to cut themselves and dance and try to do everything they could to get the attention of their God. Maybe he'll grow weary of hearing us cry out to him and he'll answer us. So they would repeat themselves. The Jews would have said, oh, no, we don't do that. That's wrong. That's entirely wrong. We're not like the pagans. And they, they weren't, but they did have their repeated pre-written prayers that they prayed every day at the same time, the same words, over and over and over again. And Jesus says, don't pray like the pagans. You don't have to repeat your written prayers every single day at the same time every day to get God's attention. Don't pray with these vain repetitions. And now we can look at the pagans and say, yeah, we don't do that. We don't try to work ourselves up into a frenzy. We can look at the Jews and say, yeah, we don't use those liturgical pre-written prayers that we go to every day. But you know what? We fall into the exact same trap. Because you see, there's a ditch on both sides of the road, right? You've got the ditch on the one side that says, I'm going I'm to read these prayers and you've got your, your, your pattern that you're going to follow every single day. And that's not exactly right. It might be some good things in those prayers, but it be can become uh, vain. It can become useless because you're not even thinking about it anymore. You're just doing it to be doing it. And so in the, in the name of, of liberty and freedom, we say, well, we're not going to use any kind of guide, any kind of written tool, and we're going to go all the way over here, and I'm just going to pray spontaneously every time I pray every day. And you know what you end up doing anyway? Praying the same old things about the same old things over and over and over and over again. Uh, bless them, bless them, bless us, bless them, be with us, be with them, be with us, be with them. God's already said he's going to bless you. God's already said he's going to be with you. What are you praying for? Lead, guide, and direct us, right? Why do we say all three? Don't they mean the same thing? We, just, we have our things that we say over and over and over again in the name of liberty and freedom and not using a written prayer. Jesus says don't pray using these vain repetitions. Don't just come and say, Lord, thank you for this food. Bless it. Amen. You know, now I lay me down to sleep. I mean, you insert whatever prayer you tend to pray with frequency. Does that mean that, well, Jesus says here, he says, how do we pray? He says, in this manner, verse 9, in this manner, therefore, pray. Does that mean that we need to memorize this prayer and quote it to God every day? Well, no, that would be the same problem that he's condemning in verse 7, right? Even the Lord's prayer can become a vain repetition. And in many places it has. I believe when Jesus gives us this prayer, and we're not going to go through it all today, when Jesus gives us this prayer, He's giving us a framework for prayer. He's giving us a set of guidelines that should help us prioritize what to pray for and how to pray for it. Every petition in this prayer, as you work through it, pr provides for us a category into which we can place each need of our own and know how to pray for it rightly. And so the opening line of the prayer simply says this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father in heaven. We'll look more at hallowed be your name next week. But just for these last few minutes, let's just think about this first line of this prayer. Our Father in heaven. Just take the time.
to think about who it is that we're addressing when we pray? Do you realize that every time that you bow your head and say, Dear God, that you have just stepped into the presence of your Maker, the God of heaven and earth, the Sovereign who rules over all things, lends you His ear. We are praying to our Father in heaven. Take note of this. He is our Father. He is our Father. There's a sense in which God is our Father because He made us. Malachi says, have we not all one Father? Has God not created us all? But we don't come to, come to our Father simply as our Maker. For those of us who have had our sins forgiven by Jesus Christ, He is our Father in a special way by adoption and by the new birth. Ephesians 1.5 says that He predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Once we were His enemies... Through Jesus, He has adopted us into His family. And now we can truly call God our Father. We looked at it just a few weeks ago. Jesus was pretty clear when He spoke to the Pharisees. He said, he said you are of your father, the devil. You do His will. That's your father by nature. You're children of the devil. You are enemies of God. But Jesus came and lived that sinless life in your behalf. He died in your place, took the punishment, the wrath for all of your sins. And when you repent of your sins and put your trust in Jesus alone, He forgives your sins. He washes you white as snow, the Scriptures say. And He adopts you into His family. You're no more a child of the devil. You're no more an enemy of God. But you can be rightly called God's child. Through Jesus, God is our Father. And Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts that you cry out, Abba, Father. You have the Spirit of the Son of God living in you. And you are God's child if you belong to Christ. As our Father, He cares for our needs. In fact, He knows them before we ask. You might have thought I skipped verse 8 there. But He says, Therefore do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. If He knows what we need before we ask, why ask? Why pray? Again, we talk about the two ditches, right? There's the one camp on the side of the road that says, uh, No, we don't need to pray at all. God knows what we need. He's sovereign. He's in control. And we just go along and He'll give us what we need when we need it. And we just trust Him. You don't have to pray. When you've got on the other side of the road, you've got people who think it all depends on your prayer. And you've got to pray and pray and pray and be anxious in your prayers and hope that God hears you and hope that He answers you. And if you don't pray long enough and loud enough, He won't give you what you need. Both of those are wrong. Yes, we plead with God. We, we come before God with our requests. But we also trust that He's sovereign, that He knows what's best for us, and that He'll give us what we need, because He is our Father. Listen, you've done it with your kids just as much as I've done it with mine. 
Sometimes you see them trying to do something, you think that is not right, it is never going to work the way they're trying to do it right now. I'm just going to let them do this for a little bit and see if they ask me for help. Sometimes it's just for the moment of peace and quiet, right? They're, they're occupied. That's not the same with God. But why pray? One, because He told you to. <laughs> just obey Him. Two, we pray because praying expresses our dependence on God. We say, God, we need you. And it conforms us to His will. Prayer doesn't change God's mind. Prayer doesn't change God in any way. God is unchanging. You know who prayer changes? You. It conforms you to His will. It makes you dependent on Him. It brings you to trust Him. And three, you should pray because God has chosen to use our prayers as the means by which He does His work in the world. Can you imagine that? God has His plan. God will accomplish His work. But He's chosen to do it through people like us. He's chosen to use your prayers. He has chosen, in some cases, to wait for you to pray before He does His work. Man, I want to be a part of that. I want God to use me in my prayers. He cares for us because He's our Father. And listen, you, you, might, you don't have a perfect dad. I'm not going to say you might not have a perfect dad. You definitely don't have a perfect dad. And you're definitely not a perfect dad. And it's easy to bring baggage into our relationship with God. Maybe the things that were imperfect about your relationship with your own dad here on earth, you bring that into your relationship with God and you don't really think about God rightly. Or maybe you think about how you've been a dad and how you treat your own kids and you carry that into your relationship with God and think that's how God treats you. Listen, we've got to just know God for who God is and stop adding our filters on top of Him. God cares for you. He will supply every need. He knows every need you have before you ever ask. And He will meet your needs. He wants you to ask. Also, notice He says, Our Father in heaven. In heaven. He is omnipresent, yet He's described here as being in heaven. What does He mean by that? I think this should cause us to think of the, the transcendence and the holiness of God. While He is our Father, and we should be able to come to Him boldly and in a familiar way, we also must not lose that sense of awe and reverence as we approach God. Come to Him boldly. Yes, He is your Father. Be familiar in your speech with Him. Yes, He is your Father. But also come trembling, because He is your Father in heaven. He is the Sovereign over all the universe. He's powerful. He has all the resources of heaven to meet your needs. He doesn't just care, but He can actually meet your needs. So how should this affect your prayer life? Just this one line of this prayer that we look at this morning, our Father in heaven, how should this affect your prayer life? How can you pray differently this week thinking about your Father in heaven? How about, before, how about when you pray, before you ask for anything, before you bring your first request to God, you take a moment or a few and acknowledge who it is you're speaking to. Take a moment to think about who you're addressing in your prayer and then try to put it into words. It might sound something like this. 
Oh God, you are my father. I praise you that you have made me your child. That while I was in sin, while I was your enemy, through the death and the resurrection of your son Jesus, you took a wretched sinner like me and you adopted me into your family. I was your enemy, now I'm your child. You are my father and you are my father in heaven. You are holy, you are high and lifted up, you are worthy of all worship and praise. And it's to you that I come today. You are my Father in heaven. How would that affect your prayer life if you just started like that? And just acknowledged God for who He is. Acknowledged God as your Father in heaven. You might pray a little more selflessly. Your prayers might be a little more God-centered. Pray with a sense of awe. So why don't we do that this week? Before you pray, just take a moment and acknowledge God. Address Him as your Father in heaven. And maybe if you're here and you do not know Him as your Father, He now at this moment is your enemy because you're living in your sins. He has made a way for you to be adopted into His family. By sending Jesus to die in your place, you can be set free from your sin, from your guilt, from your shame. And you can be brought into the family of God and you can pray, oh, my father in heaven. Because he will be your father. Let's pray. Father. God, you are our father. And you have done these things. You made us in your image. And even though we broke that image in sin, you sent your own son, Jesus, to save us, to restore us, to bring us into fellowship with you. We praise you for being our loving father. You know what we need before we ask, but you delight in our asking. And you have all the resources of heaven to answer our prayers. So God, I pray that we would honor you this week as our Father in our prayers. And that if someone here doesn't yet know you as Father, that they would be born again even today. In Jesus' name, amen.